Welcome to Secrets from the Saddle podcast. I'm Sylvie Daou, your host, fellow cyclist, bike club founder, cycling coach, bike race junkie, just truly super passionate about cycling. My journey with cycling started 20 years ago when I opened a spin studio, started a women's race team, and founded a women's only cycling club called Cycle Fit Chicks. I'm super thrilled to reveal all aspects that make the world of cycling operate. I'm so excited to be able to bring you interesting people from around the world, pro cyclists, recreational cyclists, coaches, event organizers, bike shop owners, everything and everyone you need to know or ever wondered about when it comes to cycling. I know you'll enjoy this episode. All right. Thank you, everybody, for coming out for this amazing episode of Secrets from the Saddle, All Things Cycling with your host, Libby Daou. And I am elated to have on such gurus here to this episode, to this podcast, Joe Priel and Jim Rutherford. Oh my gosh. Um, if you have ever been into cycling, the odds are, and you were serious about it, that you picked up one of, all right, I got them all. <laughs> I even have the third edition um, of one of Joe's books um, that, helped you along understand how you got into training and how you train properly. Um, I don't have the training over 50. I just turned 50. So now I've got to get that one. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't need that one just yet. And Jim has been um, a great contributor to their latest book, which they got out very quickly this summer um, due to COVID. And I'm going to tell you guys, uh, before I, I uh, give you each one of their bios and, and, in, and bring them in, um, I was, uh, so I was sitting there in the fall and uh, I was looking at Swift. I'm like, I didn't want to bring, be brought in like under the FOMO of everybody else training and getting on board and just doing you know, just riding ridiculous miles. I want to do it smartly as a coach. It's always like, you know, you train for a purpose. Um, and I saw this book on audibles and I downloaded it. And I want to tell you guys that you inspired me to really jump into Swift, but you know, the right way I find, which is training with a plan and doing, you know, like doing your 80, 20, you know, endurance based building and your intervals. And anyways, for me, I just want to thank you for putting this together so quickly this summer. Did you guys do it like really quickly this summer? No, we didn't. This was an idea I had two years ago. Oh, no way. <laughs> I've never, we've never heard of the word COVID, you know. I just realized one day I was going through, I, I think I had tra I was training indoors one day. I came back inside and realized I hadn't seen any books on turning indoors. I wonder if there's anything like that. And I started shopping around, didn't find anything. So I thought, well, hey, this might be a good idea for a book to fill a gap that's open right now. So, you know, I started working on the project two years ago and Jim came on board. Uh, Jim came, when, when, when was it, Jim? Late 2019 or thereabouts? Yeah, right, right about the first of the year in uh, 2020. So a, a few weeks literally before we ever had heard of COVID. Right. <laughs> 
So it was, it was something we were not even aware of. It was just a, it was just a, something that came later on. We just had, made us look like we were geniuses by turning, doing writing this book all of a sudden to fit the situation. It wasn't that way at all. That it, well, I, I was just like, wow, what timing that you guys put this together. And it seemed like really quick just when I went through it. So here I'm going to introduce you to Joe and, and Jim. So Joe um, is a lifetime athlete and his master's degree in exercise science. He has trained and um, conferred with uh, amateur to professional endurance athletes from a wide variety of sports since 1980. Uh, based on his experience, he co-founded Training Peaks, which is another platform that I'm certain everybody is uh, familiar with if you trained or trained with a coach um, in 1999 with his son Dirk and friend Gear Fisher. He currently coaches only a few athletes. He lives in beautiful um, Sedona, Arizona. And I was just saying there's another reason why I should go to Arizona <laughs> or go back to Phoenix. Um, and uh, he has regular, regularly takes him to coaching seminars around the world, which is not so much right now. So he does a lot of stuff from his house. Um, so uh, Joe's philosophy and methodology for training athletes is discovered over uh, more over the last 40 years and is based on a strong interest in sports science research, hence all his books. And then we have Jim. Hold on here. Jim is the owner of Rutherford Communications and has been an athlete, coach, and content creator focusing on outdoor sports, endurance coaching, and cycling events for more than 20 years. God, you sound like me. I must have started right there. <laughs> in 2000 he decided um he has a media um he is a media director and coach for uh cts and co-author with chris carmichael um the ultimate ride and food for fitness um and he has now joined with joe to put together this amazing book which is one of the things we will be talking about but Welcome, guys, to the podcast. I'm so blessed to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks for, thanks for inviting us, Sylvie. Looking forward to it. Yes, thank you. Um, so I always, and thanks so much again, and I, so I always like to kind of start off the podcast with asking, what's your history in cycling and, you know, what brought you to the sport and how did, you know, how did you evolve into publications. Joe, Joe you want to start? Sure. Um, it's a long, long story. I'm just going to hit the highlights. Okay, perfect. <laughs> uh, early 1970s, you realize I'm pretty old. So this goes back a long way. <laughs> early 1970s, I was playing racquetball with a close friend of mine. He was a very good racquetball player. Um, he was a former quarterfinalist in NCAA tennis and so his hand-eye coordination and agility and such was excellent. But I found if I was, the, if I was good that toward the end of a, an hour, he started fading. So I realized if I just got in better shape, I could, I could take him beyond an hour and I could kill him. So I decided to start training. So I started running. This is early 1970s. The running boom was just beginning. That led to running marathons. That led to me opening a running store in 1980 in Colorado. 
um, that led then I people I hired to work in my store. Some were triathletes. They talked me into trying triathlon. The, the next thing I did was 1983. I bought the bike store next to my running store, took down the wall between the two. I had the first triathlon store in the world, which the world was not ready for. And uh, wow. then I, I discovered my son start, began bike racing. He was about uh, 12, 13, 12, 13 years old when, he, when I opened the store. And he started bike racing and I kind of liked seeing what the fun he was having. So I started bike <laughs> racing also. So I was doing I was doing running races, triathlons, and bike races for many, many decades, actually. And uh, the thing just kept growing on me to the point that I started coaching and everything, which is, it's a long story. We'll go into all that. Basically, it was just because I, I enjoyed, uh, when, once I got into it, I enjoyed it a lot and it just kind of like I became addicted. So that's, and it's been that way ever since. I still after 40 some years still train like I'm a kid, but I enjoy it every day. So what got you, so at that point, did you start coaching your son or did you start coaching athletes or how did you trans, transfer into the coaching part? In the 1980s, I was a high school, I'm sorry, 1970s, I was a high school track and field coach. And so I was coaching already. My, my degree was in exercise science, as you mentioned. And uh, so when I opened the running store in 1980, people kept coming in the store wanting to know how they could train for a marathon or, or whatever, um, 10K, whatever they wanted to do. And I would give them advice while I'm selling them a pair of running shoes. And the next thing I know, they were asking me to write down the plan for them. And I'm starting to take a lot of my time <laughs> telling people how to train when I could be selling shoes. So I finally said, okay, I'm going to have to start charging people to do this. I can't just do it for free and it takes too much time. So I decided, okay, I'll charge them $5 to write them a plan. And I thought that for sure will keep them away. And of course, I did not keep them away. That brought more people in for $5 a training plan. And so I just kept raising the price on training plans until I was making, I was making more off of coaching athletes than I was off of my store. And so in 1987, I decided to get out of the retail business and just start coaching. And oh, so this, okay. it was this long, again, very long process of all kinds of things happening. But I was just like, yeah, it was the right place at the right time, essentially. Cool. Well, we'll dive into the other stuff after we hear from Jim. So, Jim, sure, how did you sure. get into it? Uh, pretty much from the, uh, from the bike racing side of it. I, I was a bike racer through high school and college and okay. tried my hand at, at Full time, racing full time and was somewhat mediocre um, and ended up um, really in an internship out in, in a coaching company in Colorado. Um, and it was at that point that they asked me to write some articles and um, liked the articles. And I, I had a, a degree in exercise science, but had never really wanted or thought that I could go into, into writing. Uh, what I found was that I enjoyed um, helping coaches get their message out or to, for them to reach a wider audience than the one-to-one -one, uh, coach-athlete relationship. And often they weren't as, as good at it or as comfortable with it. So I shifted more into that media side and, and trying to help get coaches' messages out uh, to as many people as I could. And it would help that 
with a degree in exercise science and some experience in coaching, I can speak the language and, and translate uh, the concepts well to, at least I think well to, uh, to a, a, a wide audience. Right. Well, you certainly spoke to me. Good. Well, you guys. So, all right. Well, thanks. That's great. So you're both moving along. You're into um, sort of articles. Joe, you're into coaching. Now, let's get into the moving into books because, Jim, you helped co-author or co-write a couple as well. And Joe, you got into your own series. So Jim, you were more with. Well, I started um, out with Chris, Chris? and, and uh, Jason Coop uh, more recently co-authoring an ultra running book. Um, okay. And then um, Joe. Um, and yeah, it, I pretty much fell into it. Um, I, the contract to write a book came in before we at CTS before we had anybody to write it. So uh, basically it was a, hey, do you think you can do this? And I had only written magazine articles prior to that. And I thought, well, I, okay, I, I'll give it a shot. Um, Why not? <laughs> and uh, I, yeah, I guess I'm still doing it. Yeah. Wow. And so Joe, what made you decide to put together like these volumes of material like these are detailed and you got like additions <laughs> yeah well again it's a long story it goes back a long ways i'll just hit the highlights hey. um, i started writing for a publication called velo news okay in, yeah uh, in the late 80s and uh they like and they they liked my stuff and they kept me around and which was good for me i enjoyed doing it and that allowed me to kind of like think through what I do and why I do it and explain it to people. And so they had a sister company called uh, Velo Press, which publishes books Yeah. Uh, besides Velo News. So they were sister companies. And Velo Press liked what I was writing for the magazine also. So they asked me if I'd write a book. That was about 1983. And I said, hey, I really just don't have time. You know, I'm, I'm coaching a bunch of athletes, trying to train you know, 15, 20 hours a week. Uh, I did all, had too much stuff going on. So I just kept turning them down saying I couldn't do it. And then in 1984, I got a virus in my heart. Um, cool. And uh, I went, I was working with a cardiologist. And he said, you need to stop exercising altogether until all the symptoms are gone. And so I didn't know how long that would be. So I contacted the publishing house and said, hey, I've got, all of a sudden I've got like 17 hours a week that I can work my book. So let's do it. I just figured the book would sell, you know, a thousand copies in seven years and that'd be the end of it. And it sold like 5,000 copies the first month it was out. And uh, it just blew me away. That was a cyclist training Bible, the first edition of it, which right. is very rough compared with, yeah, compared with what's, what the more, more recent copies or versions are like. So it was kind of a, you know, it's, it's, at the time when I had the virus in my heart, um, I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Looking back now, I see it as being one of the best things that ever happened to me because I never would have taken on the project of writing a book if I hadn't been forced to do something. And so it just came at the at the right time for me. Again, I've just I've just been I've got this lucky streak going for my entire life. I'm always in the right place at the right time. 
doing things I enjoy and somehow they wind up working out for me. And so can't say much more than that. I'm just a lucky guy. Well, I, th <laughs> well, I think there are a lot lucky of lucky guy. people. Pardon? I think there are a lot, a lot of us are lucky that you ended up with that virus in a weird way because, you know, <laughs> it's uh, led to some, some very good, you know, content and, and helped a great deal of people, great number of people. Yeah, I, I imagine that um, after that, you just decided to hand each one of your, uh, your athletes one of these and go, here, read it. <laughs> well, somebody, but, one, of my, one of the athletes told me that, you know, you really shouldn't write a book because that means if all people do then is buy your book and they want to have you coach them. I'd become a former coach instead of a real coach. And it was just the opposite. I wound up getting a lot more athletes because of the book. And so I learned a lesson. And the, the more you give away, the more you get back. So that's always been my way of seeing the world since then is if I can help people, I will do everything I can to help them. And I know it's going to be good for them. It's also going to be good for me. So everybody wins. So it's kind of like, why not help people out? So it's just been become a way of life for me. Oh, for sure. And I'm sure this opened up a lot of um, interesting views on different types of like how to coach properly. And like, oh, yeah. um, you know, that people probably ne didn't necessarily think about because, you know, when you have a coach, a coach does a lot of special one-on-one -on -one coaching for skills especially with regards to cycling and um half the population you know unless you're coached you don't know about them um and then when once you get a book then you're like oh my gosh like i need somebody to really help me put together like put some of these skills into play otherwise is that yeah. where is that where training piece came in yeah, Training Peaks came in because I had a coaching company throughout the uh, 1980s, 1990s. And my son joined me as he was, he was racing pro in Europe uh, in the early 80, early 90s into the mid 90s. And he kind of retired from the European circuit and started racing in the US and joined me as assistant coach in my coaching company. Mm -hmm. And he realized about 1999 that what we were doing as far as communication with our clients was pathetic. Uh, basically, it was like, you know, it was like using smoke signals or something. It was, it was terrible. <laughs> so he said he, he, he thought he could come up with a much better way of doing this. And so he came up with this idea, which, which was an online way of communicating with athletes. And that, be, that was 1999. That became Turning Peaks. And, um, and it just, it just grown ever since. And now we've got something like 400 uh, employees and, and uh, we've got clients around the world and it's, it's just it's gone well beyond what either of us thought it could possibly ever become right now there's the new generation right there dad we need to do something more efficient than what you've been doing so you can help more people i think i've got it <laughs> yeah. he, he, i'm glad i brought him on board again at the right place at the right time the internet is just getting started. You know, the websites are just beginning. Oh, yeah. And we open a website and we had to make all kinds of decisions on how we're going to do this. And uh, we happened to make the right decisions all the way through. And the thing is just went gangbusters after it opened up. So that's uh, true. Because when I started my studio in 2000, um, 
there was like email lists going around, word of mouth, that's it with regards to, and I remember using Training Peaks myself when I was heavier into clients and I used it for, for my clients and creating, um, uh, creating programs. And also my coach who was coaching me used it and he sent, so it was just like a lot of, Good. I love that program. That Thank platform you. was cool. The growth of uh, Trading Peaks, I was at the, I was at CTS at the very beginning of that company in, in 2000 as well. And the, the Trading Peaks and CTS sort of grew at the same time. And for a period, we were both doing software and coaching. And okay. several, a couple of years later, um, it became very clear that Trading Peaks had the software done right. And we were not really keeping pace and and had a soul searching moment of let's let you know let's let training peaks handle this and 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 because they're do they had device integration figured out and we didn't um and we decided to focus on coaching development or development of coaches and so the companies kind of split from there and then actually came back together um a couple of years after that and all of our all of the cts coaches use training peaks um as the platform that they coach our athletes on. What's CTS, Jim? Um, Carmichael Training Systems was one of the oh, okay, okay. Uh, one of the Carmichael early training systems. Uh, okay, we were one of the early coaching companies, along with Training Peaks and a, and a few others that are emerging at the as the internet came out and or was being more developed and started the process of uh, figuring out how to coach athletes remotely using the internet. Um, so we kind of grew up at the, at the same time and then right. kind of yeah. diverged and crossed paths again. And right. um, it's been an interesting, interesting road over the last 20 years. So does, does CTS hire coaches and help athletes find coaches? Is that like a, a is that what it, we, what that platform's all about? We are, uh, we develop coaches using sort of an internal education program Ooh, okay. um, so that the coaches speak a, a common language and, and uh, athletes can then, if they want to, if their goals shift or we have athletes who want a different coach, they can move from coach to coach and it's a similar language that they can, and, and similar experience. Oh, so we have okay. A, so it's a, about, it's a training platform. Uh, yeah, just a, a like remote a coaching company. So 50 plus coaches who are, are affiliated. Wow, cool. All right. So, and do you still work with Chris Carmichael? Yeah, I still write for, for them. I've, I've gone out kind of on my own uh, from the content side, but I, I um, work closely with them and a couple other coaches and Joe. And as I said, I, I shifted to the idea of wanting to help coaches and physiologists get their messages out. Right. Um, okay. And because I like the idea of, reaching as many people as I could uh -huh. and, as, and reaching as many people as they could, um, you know, to influence their, their audiences. Yeah. You have to break it down layman terms for all of us <laughs> to make it, like you said, so you can reach everybody. All right. So before we get right into this book, I wanted to talk about contribution and um, we were, so Jim, we we're talking about like with Joe, how um, I found out that he was assisting a cycling, a youth cycling team in Sierra Leone, Africa. 
And um, so I, I was just going to ask him a little bit about that and how he found himself helping them. And then we can dive right into the book and talk, talk more about the Ride Inside book um, and get into that. So Joe, I'd love to uh, just sort of outline that because I, like I mentioned, I did um, a podcast with uh, Richard Musa from the Flames Cycling Club in Sierra Leone, Africa. And in part of their bio, they mentioned that you were one of their supporters. And uh, I thought that was a really cool full circle because I just had gotten your email back and it was really a <laughs> talk about lucky. But um, how did you find or how did they find you or is it well, a simple reach out? Um, about, I think it was probably about, uh, about a year ago, it was winter of, of, of this past year, that somebody, a guy, I think it was in England, contacted me, and, and I forgot, I've forgotten his name now, unfortunately, but um, he, had, he was involved getting this team started in, in Africa, in Sierra Leone, and they were they're juniors, they're, you know, they're, they're teenage boys. Yeah. And there's, I've forgotten, half a dozen of them or so, and um, he was trying to get them going in cycling, but they didn't have, they had terrible equipment, they had websites, so I went and looked at it. And their stuff was just like, you know, their shoes were, the cleats were worn out. They were just worn down to the nub. I have no idea how they stayed and clipped in. Uh, the bikes were terrible. You know, clothing just was awful. Everything was really, really bad. And he wanted to know if there was anything I could do to help them out. And so I had some resources. So I, I, I essentially sent them all copies of my, of my books. Um, and uh, sent them stuff from Churning Peaks, water bottles and t-shirts and just a bunch of swag they could, they could use. And then this guy from England began searching and found people to provide things like more and more equipment for them, shoes and companies that provide stuff like that, uh, nutritional aids and so forth. So he did a great job. It's really because of him that I was involved. I didn't, I didn't walk into this looking for them. They found me. And so since then I've had one uh, some brief contact with the, the boys and they're just a, a fun group of kids to, to see finally get to do something um, yeah. that's really beneficial for them in the long term in their, in their lives, not in terms of necessarily uh, professional careers or anything like that, but more along the lines of just getting their lives in, in order to do things that are really very positive. So I saw it as just, a, again, a win-win for everybody. If I could get things for them, I would get feedback from them on how they're doing. And uh, so it, it just, it's worked out really well. They're, they've been a great group of kids to help out. And I'm always there to help them if I can any other way in the future. So, uh, and there's been lots of other people besides me. So yeah, uh, good group. they've got, again, the website online. I think it's uh, flamescycling.com, if I recall yeah. right. I may be wrong on that. But they've got all kinds of pictures of their team and et cetera. So it's kind of fun to look at, to see how they're in another part of the world. How do cyclists get started? Oh, I know. And, uh, um, I was just trying to find his name because it, it <laughs> they did mention him as well. Um, yeah, no, it, it was quite a, a great uh, interview between Richard and I, because it took us like four different platforms to finish it. Like we went from zoom to like, Instagram to Facebook to like 
WhatsApp and we were able to get like a full interview, but it, it was great to hear how he uh, was getting kids off the streets and uh, they were actually producing really good uh, results yeah. as, a, as a result of that. And yeah, it's a lot, uh, of, a lot of fun to watch them grow. It's, it's just one yes, of those sort of sure. You see somebody finally get started in a sport like cycling and, and it turns their lives around. It's, it's very rewarding. Yeah, and he's huge on education too. So they have to go to school. They have to be like of, um, like he has certain standards for the kids. You know, you can't just be in here for cycling, which I thought was really cool. So he really does endorse like education and finishing high school and, and things like that. So I thought that was quite, um, quite powerful. So, all right, Jim, do you have any things you want to add? Cause I don't want to leave you out either. Um, but we can just jump in unless if you're doing some great stuff that I don't know about. No, I'm just busy raising or raising two boys and, and uh, oh. trying to, uh, stay active on my own at this point. So, uh, I think we can jump right in. Oh my gosh. Kudos to you. I have one boy and I'm just, sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I, if I had two, I don't know what I'd be doing. <laughs> so my girlfriends have three boys and I'm like, wow, good for you. But all right. So let's talk about a little bit more about ride inside. I want to, like I said, this book talked to me like more than you even know. I was just sitting there. I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. Yes, I was just thinking about the, the concepts you're talking about. And I'm like, things that I've been coaching for the last 15 years in my programs. And, um, and the thing is, for me, I think it was more, gave me, um, I think like, I want to think, I was say something better, like the knowledge and just a little bit of the background that's not even the word I'm looking for, but anyways, to go and tackle Swift properly and riding properly inside because I've ridden inside. I've never really trained um, seriously over a winter because I kind of relaxed because I used to race a lot. And as you know, if you race through the summer, it is all about racing, you know, um, commuting to the race, recovering from the race, tracing, training for races. And then, you know, once September rolls around, maybe you get, you can stop racing. Um, so I always took, you know, the winter as a little bit of a down. Um, but this book really encouraged me to embrace Swift for what it is. Um, so would you guys like to talk about how I know it started two years ago, but when COVID hit, you must have been like, "Oh my gosh, let's just accelerate this, getting it out now." Is that what happened? Yeah, so I was just kind of like, "Oh my God, February, we can't do anything. Let's finish the book." Yeah, I was kind of feeling that way that we were running behind <laughs> schedule. There wasn't, there was no schedule at all when we started. It was just the book we were going to write that someday would come out. Didn't care. And all of a sudden, it became this thing when you get this book out as soon as possible. And so I think it came out, if I recall right, about August or so, it finally finally made it to the bookshelves. Yeah. And um, it's been doing pretty well, primarily because of COVID, but the world has changed also. And I, that's what I saw two years ago was that 
the world of indoor training was, was changing. When I started riding indoors back in the 80s, gosh, you know, I, I was riding this on, I had a, uh, some basic old trainers and I was sitting in front of the TV watching Tour de France DVRs, you know, for three or four hours at a time on a snowy day and, and just can't wait for the sun to come out again. I don't care how, how deep the snow is, I'm gonna go for a ride as soon as it stops snowing and get outside again. But that world has now changed. Now people look forward to training indoors. They, they see it as their focus is training indoors. Racing yeah. indoors has become a, a sport all by itself. And so it's just been a gigantic change in the world of cycling since, uh, since COVID. It was actually starting before COVID, but the COVID yeah. just accelerated it. Well, I remember, and yeah, I remember, I think last year, if, if I can think from some of my friends, I think that's when they kind of started getting on Swift and training inside. But then, I mean, I don't know very many people in my area who kind of jumped on board um, last year, last winter. Because for us, it was kind of like March, and then we had April, and then we're, everybody, but it really pushed us to get outside faster, that's for sure. Um, but uh, those trainers flew off the shelves in the fall, like hotcakes. And that's when everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is going to continue on for a long time. And it just blows my mind what kind of a world is inside of Swift or Zwift or, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, what do you think, Jim? Of... Yeah. I, um, you know, I think that we have to get to the point where we're at the point where indoor cycling is its own discipline. It's not it's purely a vehicle for, or a poor alternative to riding outdoors or something that you'll do if you have to, because you can't ride outdoors. There are, good and compelling reasons to, um, to be an indoor cyclist. Um, and we're seeing more and more, uh, whether it's on RGT or Ruby or Be Cool or Zwift, any of these platforms, more and more people who um, are so comfortable indoors that they're riding more, they're riding more frequently, they're riding more yeah. consistently, they feel safer, um, yeah. they're in better shape than they've been in, in in years um, and in some cases they have you know two two setups or three setups side by side and they're riding with their partner and their kids and um, oh, yeah. so it really is a, a far cry from the days when yeah we were in, in basements and garages staring at brick walls and riding rollers um, yeah and I think in the grand scheme of things it is reducing the barriers to entry for uh, outdoor activity as well, because it, you know, the old group rides and, and, um, and, uh, and events, there's a lot of intimidation that goes into, am I fit enough? Am I strong enough mm -hmm. to go out and do the group ride, to enter that triathlon, to, to enter that bike race? And with easier access to training year round, people, I believe, have that confidence and we're seeing even from the Peloton side, um, which is a, an entirely, you know, a different avenue into cycling, yeah. we're seeing those people um, mm -hmm. get out onto the on and transition into outdoor cycling and outdoor triathlon. Yeah. Oh my gosh, for sure. 
And I think um, you hit um, one thing you said was a safety factor. Um, I don't know if it's just been lately or the last year or two where people have, where there's just been more accidents. And I don't know if, if there's as many before, but they're certainly in the media now, which, which scares a lot of people to not yeah. ride outside. I mean, last year drove sales for cyc bicycles like through the roof. So there's way more new cyclists um, on the road too. And that, prov that proved to be interesting. You had more accidents on bike paths and things like that, uh, or recreational paths, not bike paths, but recreational paths with, or multi-use paths. And then, um, and then just the transition of those beginner cyclists inside you know and um so what do you think about what do you think about it, joe like great opportunity to bring this like how do you feel well, like I, the book I, is being think, received or yeah I, I, feedback i've gotten from readers is that it solves a lot of uh, uh questions they've had um, about how to how to go about churning indoors. Part of the problem, I think, with indoors is you can race every day if you want to. Uh, on the road, you can't do that because there aren't races ever happening every day. But you can you can you can race almost daily, year round. And so some people are actually racing too much now because of it. They push themselves to their limits too often. Um, I, I follow a lot of people on uh, on Twitter who ride indoors and I'm always seeing things about they're, they're just blown away by how great their numbers are. And the biggest number they talk about is how many races they've done. That's like one of the favorite topics is how much <laughs> racing am I doing and what's my, what's my normalized power been and, and how many TSS has I've been creating. And so I'm just a little bit concerned that people are going to be pushed to the edge from indoor training. And it needs to be treated much the same as we do outdoors. Outdoors has evolved into something which is, uh, which is beneficial to the athlete because there aren't daily races. There are, there are races they can train for, but it's not something they feel compelled to do on a, on a daily basis. But right. indoors, sometimes they, they feel compelled to do it. So that, that's my greatest concern with it. It's a great device, a great tool but it can be, as with most, any devices or any tools, it can be overused also. Do you see another edition coming out just based on that? Do you think you could put <laughs> out a book? No, seriously, because I totally agree with you. I mean, I love recovery days. Not too many people say they love recovery days or feel not guilty about taking them. I totally love them. Maybe I overuse them, but, but the thing is that I'm not burnt out. I'm not injured. I'm not like, you know, I'm still, um, do you see something, do you see a trend that you can work with based on what you're seeing well, for you guys? I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing lots of clinics right now for cycling groups, uh, triathlon groups and cycling groups online. Um, and this is one of my favorite topics with them is, making sure they get enough rest and recovery and sleep and all that sort of stuff. Because having coached athletes and been around lots of really good athletes for 40 years, 
one of the worst mistakes that age group athletes make is they just don't get enough rest and recovery and yeah. then try to make every workout too hard. And uh, so uh, that's one of my topics I have to always bring up with groups is you got to, you've got to do what you can to keep things under control and here's how you do it. And so I go, then I go into this long rigmarole about what's the key to making sure you keep this under control. How do you do that? And we get down yeah. to all the details and nitty gritty of training so that people don't drive themselves to their limits because that sometimes causes people to drop out of the sport and they get so involved in, in doing this that after a while they're just burned out. They're just fried. Yeah. They just can't keep doing it. And they realize they can't do it anymore and they hate it because of that. And the, the key to, as you, as you mentioned, the key to longevity in the sport is rest and taking it easy. Yeah. I have to slow my wife down from time to time. We're going, we went for a ride together today and we started out, I had to tell her to slow down. You're working way too hard. She tries to make it into a race, you know? So that, that's <laughs> No, that's an unusual it. comment from a guy. <laughs> you, that, I, I'm, I, do, I make the same mistake. So it's, it's just the way we are. This is the way we are. And yeah. we, have to be, we have to be told to back off. Mm -hmm. You really can't go hard all the time. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly a book there. <laughs> The, the I know, culture of endurance like, sports. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, because you do do the endurance sports stuff. So yeah, chime the in. The culture Jim. of endurance sports is very is is very good for sort of type A personalities because I think it shows them uh, that they're that the benefit of of rest. Finally, they may have to hurt themselves before they get there, um, but it um, it helps to to make people see the concept of rest differently and then hopefully apply it to other areas of their lives, career, uh, relationships, all of these things. Unfortunately, and Joe knows this, you know, very well too. It's the boring stuff, uh, that, you know, it, it's, it's hard to sell somebody on the fact that you need to sleep more, but it, it, that's honestly what's, you know, what's very effective. Oh, yeah, come, I'm comes with you. Two types, comes down to two types of workouts. As Jim mentioned, there should be boring workouts and lots of them. Yeah. In fact, I tell these groups I, I've been working with on, on the internet, these clubs, you should have five boring workouts a week, five days a week where they're bored and two days a week where they dread the workout. They don't look, they, 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 it's, it's scary. It's going to be so hard. That's the range we need. We need boredom and we need scaredness, dread, <laughs> fear. We need those two extremes, nothing in between. I love it. I can, I can, yeah, I totally, it's the 80, 20 rule. Do you use like, right. you know, 80% endurance, 20% high intensity. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not the other way around. You know, it's like, you know, you go out and do all your intense rides and your race and you're like, joining these group rides and you're you know tapping out the most of the time and that was my fear is like you know if if you start joining these rides and you know what a group ride's like yeah. it's never zone two like come on like you're but that's one of the that's on one of the benefits of indoor cycling is that you have your you know especially with the smart trainers you have er yeah. ergometer mode and if we really have athletes who just will not turn off their that that uh aggressive Earth side mode. um you put them on erg mode and oh. you know the, the trainer's limited at 180 watts and 
that's it. You can pedal as fast as you want. It's still only going to be 180, 180 watts. Um, and you often don't have to do that very long until they finally, you know, like they adapt and realize, okay, now I see what I'm supposed to be doing and how this is supposed to feel. And, and then they can free ride and, and still do that. But sometimes, yeah, it takes literally putting the brakes on somebody uh, on an indoor trainer for them to get it. Yeah, I didn't invest in a smart trainer this year. I invested in power pedals. Oh. So I can swap them out. I have, a, I have a set of rollers and I have uh, just a basic trainer. So I, bet I like it. I like that uh, setup. So, but I think, um, you know, I will, um, I'll do that next year. It's like, you can only put out so much cash getting getting this set up you know i just watched some of the so the amount of money people drop on like just getting set up i was like well the power pedals weren't cheap as you know but um but i find them awesome because like i have two bikes so i can swap them and um and i can and i can jump from one trainer to the other and i don't have to to worry about it so i can train on my rollers and really go fat like you know work on my cadence and then I can jump over so but I suspect next year I'll next fall I'll, I'll drop the I'll see what the best trainer is I'll just wait for everybody <laughs> you know the they are changing to very rapidly. Say, okay which one's the, what the change the technology is changing very rapidly oh. and um that was part of the dilemma that Joe and I had with the book was you know we we knew that if we tried to cover equipment very closely and talk about features and, and the software too closely, the book would be obsolete in five months yeah. uh, because the, the technology was changing so rapidly. And so we, we tried to approach it from a different method of talking about the use cases. Mm -hmm. Because as you said, you're using a power pedal with a, um, a standard trainer or rollers. And yeah there one of the things we talked about in the book is that there's a there is a benefit to using that kind of a use case compared to uh, a smart trainer in that ergometer mode means that you don't have to actually have the internal motivation to produce 400 watts for 20 minutes or 300 watts for 20 minutes the trainer is doing it for you all you have to do is keep up with it whereas in your scenario if i'm telling you to do an interval that's you know 400 watts for three minutes and, and that's a VO2 max interval for you, you have to have the internal motivation to reach 400 watts and stay there. Yeah. And those two, uh, those two things in training are, are quite different. And then if you're gonna take them out into the, into the real world, in the real world, you're gonna have to find a way to generate those 400 watts, not have the, uh, the, the resistance um, uh, created for you. Yeah, and I kind of like that because um, I do the training intervals like once a week. So I'll go in, I'll pick like a 45 minute one. I'm like, okay, I like, I just want, um, uh, you know, short, quick intervals, you know, like the 10 second, the 15 second ones, like, sp like sprint wise or for criteriums kind of, because that's kind of what I'm training for. And I like the fact that I have to generate the power output and I can see like how, how hard I can put out like the, the, um, the power and try and match it all the time and not without having it generated for me. 
Do you know, I, and I, yeah, like you said, I, I like having that flexibility, I guess. Well, and those workouts are the ones where you're trying to generate a maximum power. Yeah. So we can't put an ergometer on it because what are you going to set the ergometer to? Yeah. Um, those, that's where some workouts, and then one of the things that Joe talks about in the book is some workouts are well suited to indoor cycling and or an ergometer for indoor cycling and other workouts are, are, can be done indoors, but you don't want to use ergometer mode because it kind of defeats the, the mm -hmm. purpose or the objective of, of the workout itself. Right. Yeah. All right. You might hear a little noise because the kids just got home. <laughs> this is one of those times of the day. Um, all right. Now we can, I'm going to promote this with links. You're right inside. I did see in the back that there is a website for everybody there with $10 off and um, to get your copy and highly, highly recommend that you add this to your, I talk about add this to your library or of information uh, books for cycling, but I talk about this in a lot of my pages because um, I think it's just so important. I actually did a podcast segment for my coach's corner on economy <laughs> because I never used the word economy. And it's funny because I, I did a segment with Hunter and he talked about economy. So we're talking about efficiency versus economy. And um, he actually, because I interviewed him two years ago and he was talking about like the whole Swift, how it's like, you know, taken off. And it was just funny how that conversation in this COVID and how everything just sort of imploded or inside. But um, yeah, so I found it very interesting because I use efficiency, the word efficiency, so much with regards to cycling power, cycling pedal stroke. Um, you guys want to talk on that? Because like, I just found it so fast. I had to read it over a couple of times just to make notes, but um, I totally understand it. At first, I was like, what? It sounds so weird to add it to verbiage for cycling, but I get it. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, it's really very simple. There's, there's three things that define aerobic or endurance fitness. If you're an endurance athlete, there are three things that define your fitness. Athletes are very vague about what fitness is. And, uh -huh. and that what, it, what it is, is, and most athletes are familiar with the first thing, VO2 max, aerobic capacity. Very yeah. familiar with that. Lactate threshold or anaerobic threshold or functional threshold. This is kind of a broad category, which all kind of revolves around on, on an RPE scale of zero to 10, around a seven, you know, kind of hard. You could hold it for an hour if you had to, but wouldn't be comfortable at all. Mm -hmm. That's another marker of fitness. It's a percentage of this one. The higher, higher your, your percentage of this is when you're at your anaerobic threshold, the more fit you are in terms yeah. of anaerobic threshold. The third measure is what you mentioned, which is economy. Economy is a gigantic category of things that have to do with measuring how much energy it takes for you to, to move the bicycle forward 
by pedaling it. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of the things you have no control over, like the length of your thigh bone. Yeah. If you have a long thigh bone relative to your leg length, that makes you a better cyclist than somebody who has a short thigh bone relative to leg length. You have no control over that. And there's lots and lots and lots of things like that. There are some things you do have control over, but not really easy, like body weight. If you have excessive body weight, that's inefficient. Mm-hmm. Uneconomic, I should say. Uneconomic <laughs> because it, caused, it causes you to have to use more energy to propel the bike up a hill, for example. Right. And then the list of these things, you know, how much, how much uh, uh, type 2 f- muscle fibers and type 1 muscle fibers you have is another part of it. You have very little control over that sort of thing. But things you do have control over are skills. Yes. How you pedal, how you corner, how you ride in a group, how well you draft. All these sorts of things are also economy. Then you get into a subcategory called efficiency, which has to do, and this, you can get lots of arguments about this. And so now we're getting to my opinion. We're getting, if you get into efficiency, I like to talk about efficiency with athletes in terms of what does the data tell us about how they're improving over time in terms of energy being expended. So for example, um, what, how much, uh, what, what is your power output per heart rate, per beat, uh, per minute? Right. If, that not, if that ratio goes up, your efficiency is improving. In fact, I call that the efficiency factor. So that's one of the things I would look for in my athletes for aerobic fitness is I want to see their power increasing for the same heart rate or for the same power, heart rate gets lower. That's becoming more efficient. And that's a I'm lot of things. becoming more efficient. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of those things that you have control over, but it's because you learn to train right. So you, you wind up doing lots of 80-20, lots of 80% workouts. Yeah. You do lots of things around your aerobic threshold, and that improves this ratio of heart rate to power over time. And so that's one of the key markers for aerobic endurance. And the sport we're talking about, road cycling, mountain biking, triathlon, etc., they're all aerobic sports. Mm-hmm. There may be in, um, anaerobic uh, episodes that determine the outcome, like sprinting for the finish line, climbing the hill. Those things determine the outcome. Hold on, hold yeah. on. Just hold okay. that thought, Joe, just a second. <laughs> Sorry, my daughter is just screaming to me upstairs. <laughs> okay, continue. I recall those days. Yeah, so, <laughs> so these... So you can, you can improve your skills, you can become more efficient. So you can learn to pedal more efficiently. Yes. And there's all kinds of things, you can, there's drills you can do and all kinds of stuff you can do. You can read online about all the stuff you can do. And there's types of training you can do to improve your aerobic um, fitness, aerobic threshold fitness. So, and so there's this, it's a gigantic category mm-hmm. of stuff that the athlete can do that'll make them more fit, unfortunately, Athletes never get beyond VO2 max and, and anaerobic threshold. That's as far as they go. They think that's it. And they have no idea this other thing out there, which is actually just as big an event, big as um, important, as important as the other two are. And in some cases, more important, depending on the athlete. So, so it's, it's a gigantic topic and one which athletes are very, um, they don't know much about. 
And that's what I specialize in is pedal stroke efficiency. I hate to say efficiency, but now I'm going to start to say economy, but pedal form. I've been doing that for like almost 15 years in my programs. Sure. I put so much emphasis on that in the winter, um, like for hill climbing, sprinting, just right straight endurance. Um, and we do lots of drills for that, like the kick, power, sweep, pull up. 15 years I've been, I've been coaching that in my winter programs. I've, uh, I've created a lot of like, <laughs> I get the feedback where from my, as they're climbing the hill, they can hear me natter at the back of their head, smooth it out, push down, <laughs> you know, make, you know, like smooth it out and stuff. So anyways, I get that. And uh, I think that's one of the areas a lot of people don't even consider, like you said in the book, is the, the form. Sure. I agree. Yeah. So what do you think, Jim? Have anything to add to that? Um, one of the things I think that indoor cycling does for people in terms of uh, pedal stroke is that um, it accentuates or makes a, a sort of a hitch in your pedal stroke or an irregularity in your pedal stroke more noticeable. You, mm -hmm. for instance, ride rollers. And if you if you're not smooth on rollers, you definitely, you immediately feel it. Yeah. Um, out on the road, and we talk about this in the book somewhat, the bike oscillates underneath you um, yes. side to side. And in a more fixed position indoors, um, you don't have the bike rocking underneath you. And then the person or the rider tends to either have to rock on the saddle a little bit more in order to get that side to side motion or because the bike is fixed, they start to notice that the pedal stroke um, doesn't feel quite symmetric between the two legs and, and things like that. Yeah. So I think that indoor cycling can um, help people to see the, that there's some work that they need to do on, on pedal stroke. Oh, for sure. And there was one thing that you, that you guys mentioned in the book that I was like, what? But the more I thought about it, I'm like, yeah, that totally makes sense where how are you saying like being on the trainer can actually make um, decrease your pedal stroke efficiency with creating like um, uh, not gaps, but um, using excess energy. Oh, I wrote it down. I was like, Oh my gosh, stop on that part. But uh you know, can make you less efficient because you're expelling more energy because you're not, it's not as smooth as it is. Like, you know how you sit on your trainer, you can just like, you know, that's, it's like the, the cyclists who feel comfortable at 60 RPM, you know, they're just like pedaling down like this. They're not, you know, bring it over the edge. And you mentioned that in, in um, one of your chapters. I was saying that, uh, yeah. how it can hinder your performance. Yeah, as Jim mentioned, there's one of the downsides of riding inside is you can get really sloppy. Yes, and there you go, it'll, sloppy. It'll, it'll show up. Um, if you spend the entire winter inside, it'll feel really weird when you get on the road because 
you've developed these bad habits. But at the same time, the trainer also offers the, um, the opportunity to improve your technique quite a bit also, mm -hmm. because you don't have to worry about traffic, stoplights, cornering, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. All these things that go into on a road ride, you can eliminate all those things now. And now you can focus on your pedaling technique. You can put your entire thought process into making sure you're pedaling smoothly. And there's all these drills you can do, as you've mentioned some already. There's all these drills that can be done to improve your pedaling technique. And you can do these things indoors to become more efficient. So when you get back on the road, you're actually better at pedaling the bike than you were before the, if you spent the entire winter indoors before the winter started. So there's some upsides and downsides to training indoors, as Jim mentioned. Yeah. And the, uh, the, one of the things that's key for, uh, for a lot of Joe's triathletes is the ability to adapt to a triathlon position or an aero position, or even for road riders to modify their, uh, their cycling positions yeah. because you can test it out indoors um, and see whether or not your, your pedal stroke is being affected. You can look at the power outputs and see whether raising, lowering the bars, extending the reach um, is having an impact on, on performance um, mm -hmm. without having and, and do it, do so having reduced the variables. So you're not outdoors with wind and weather and everything else yeah. wondering whether the aero position is more powerful or not uh, than the previous one was. The conditions are the same indoors. Um, so you can make these modifications and adapt to them. The downside being, as Joe's uh, pointed out on, on previous uh, podcasts, is that you can, uh, you can again get sloppy and raise up out of your triathlon position in order to generate more power. And there's not really a penalty for that indoors. Um, but then you, you see that penalty when they go outdoors and now they can't actually produce that power in the, in the aero position. Oh. Someday we'll have that. Someday that will be built in to trainers. <laughs> uh, yeah. See, I'm waiting for the next, uh, the next version next that's going to come out next fall, which is going to have all those extras <laughs> bells and whistles on it. <laughs> well, they've, already, they've already got, you know, Jim mentioned something a while ago about the bike moving underneath of you while yeah. you're riding sort of thing on the road, but indoors it's locked in place. Well, now we've got these devices for indoors that allow the bike to move side to side. So you can yeah. actually begin to experience somewhat more like the road where he's really right. We're not to play shit where the, where the trainer or the app knows that you need to be in an aerial position and be as aerodynamic as you can. Uh, it doesn't know that, but someday that'll be part of it. They'll use the camera on your, oh. on your, oh, God. your, on your, uh, your device, yeah. computer to record where you are right now. It'll look at your position to decide whether how much drag you're creating by based on where you are. We'll have that. All the stuff that we can't, we can't imagine right now. In a couple of years, we'll, we'll have all this stuff. It'll just be unbelievable, the stuff that we're, we're moving toward. There'll be no more cyclists outside. No, just kidding. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> and crazy. the apps are already uh, evolving to include braking, for instance, um, and, and some of the new uh, indoor bikes, the one from Stages and, and Watt Bike and, um, and uh, uh, the one from Braking? They'll They're including the equipment necessary so that when the app is uh, ready for it, you'll be able to 
use braking um, to communicate with the app as well as as uh, steering, and it, oh. and in some cases a different way of shifting. I know the stages bike, for instance, you can tell it what cassette you have on and and, and program it so that it is um, shifting as if it were uh, an outdoor bike. I don't know if I want my bike shifting for me <laughs> as much as that. Some people really like that. I'm like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go there just yet, but uh, yeah, this is, it's crazy to, I, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like in the fall after we'll see what kind of uh, what the summer brings with regards to potential uh, outside activities or events for cycling. I know a lot of people are, you know, are really looking forward to having an event to go to. Um, ourselves, like our cycling club, we put on a time trial event, which is probably one of the easiest and safest cycling event to put on if you could put one on because you know there's just no hanging out afterwards and uh but um i don't know what it was like in the states for the summer last summer was there many events around that you knew of or was everything just canceled most everything was canceled there were some events that were that were done with limited uh, field sizes. Uh, gravel races, for example, were beginning late in the summer and they limited field size. And, and so the, there's, there, there have been a sum, but it's, it's been a very small number. Yeah, I know, I know here in, in uh, Canada, they were able to pull off some national events, but um, you know, no spectators in like event, go in, do your event, leave, uh, podiums done, you know, you just get your, your podium, your medal. And, but the thing is that they were able to pull it off with it's a lot clear of, that there's, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of pent up demand though, because the several yeah. of the gravel races in the States for 21, oh, yeah. um, so have sold out in minutes when they open their registrations. Um, and then, uh, I work a little bit with some event companies and um, they're seeing registrations that are well ahead of, of what they would normally see. And some of it's because unfortunately some events have gone away so that the, there are um, fewer events to choose from, unfortunately, but it's also yeah. that there are both experienced cyclists who are really raring to go. And then there's this whole group of new cyclists who um, got into the sport in 2020 and have developed and, and really gained an interest for it. And they're looking to do their first events. Oh, I know. They're all on Swift right now. <laughs> can, you, can you just wait till they all get out together in a real race experience? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I want to be a part of that Peloton. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because uh, it's, it's so nice in the app where you don't have to you know, you could just bike right through somebody. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is so nice, but uh, so scary at the same time. So let's just, I just wanted to bring one. Okay, it's four o'clock. Just a second. Oh my gosh, hold on. Um, I thought I plugged in my, oh, my laptop, but 
Oh, here's the plug. Um, there we go. Uh, so there's one last thing I want to, to touch on with regards to training. And there's this whole thing about um, cadence. And I know we just ta we talked a little bit about cadence, but uh, there's this big discussion um, on uh, one of the women's platforms about speed. No, sorry, cadence speed. And I would say 90 plus is the place to be. Um, I love your um, opinion or feedback on cadence speed as you guys are coaches. I push the 90. Well, a 90 is a good number, uh, but everybody's <laughs> not efficient at, at 90. Um, yeah, some people are very inefficient at 90, so they're wasting energy, so they're becoming less fit. Let me, let me put it this way. Um, the way I've always thought about this is every, every individual is unique when it comes to cadence, and every individual has a range that they're, they're comfortable at and that they're economical in. They can, they can change that range if they work at it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there, you'll find lots of road cyclists, for example, who are relatively new to the sport, who are comfortable when it's like 80, 85 RPM, to get above 85 RPM, and now they're starting to have some trouble with it. They, breathing becomes more difficult, staying with the group becomes more difficult, etc. So those people can change their cadence by working on it. They can become more economical. They can become uh, um, just more fluid in, in pedaling the bicycle if they work at that. But it's not the sort of thing that happens overnight, and we're not all born to be you know, when we first get on a bike, all of a sudden we're all 90 RPM. It just takes time to get there. Yeah, so it's does. kind of a, it's a good thing. But I, I like to see why athletes work with a broad range of, of cadences. There are situations where 40 or 50 is something we need to be able to do for certain types of workouts to build force, for example, muscular yeah. force workouts. Yes. It's like 40, 50 RPM is really good for doing that. It's very dangerous. It's risky for your knees. And the athlete has to understand that, but there's also benefits. So whenever the risk gets really high, the reward also gets high. And so the real reward that comes with taking the risk of pedaling on a hill with a really low cadence. So there's, so that's, that's not bad. It's bad for some people, but they, it's primarily because they haven't adapted to that, to that range yet. They're more comfortable around 60 to 80. Then there are people who climb at 115, 120 RPMs. And, you know, they, they feel very comfortable doing that. And then it's quite economical for them, more power to them. So we've got this really broad range of possibilities. I would like to see an athlete be able to have a very broad ability when it comes to cadence. Right. From low to very high and everything in between. That would be the perfect athlete as far as I'm concerned, because now they can adapt to whatever the situation may be they can adapt to that situation because they, they know they can do it. They can pedal at high RPM, they can pedal at low RPM or in between. So when we get stuck in only one range, it's relatively narrow and, and that's all we ever do is the problem. So we can, we, can, we can adapt and learn to become better cyclists by becoming more economical with our pedaling by using more cadences at either end of the spectrum. Yes, I agree with you. I'm, I would say like I do 90 for everything but more endurance-based building, 90. When you're talking a hill climbing, it's 
it's a range as to what they what their ability is. Sure. So what do you think, Jim? Um, I agree with uh, with Joe in terms of uh, the, the flexibility is what's more necessary than um, there being a, a narrow range uh, that's optimal for for cycling. Uh, because as Joe said, you know, you can pedal at at 40 RPM with high force, or you can be pedaling at 40 RPM in a group and just kind of rolling along with very little force. Um, you can be pedaling at a very high cadence with very little force or having to, to sprint very hard at a high cadence. Um, mm -hmm. And all of those things have a place within cycling, especially performance cycling. Um, so it's, it's uh, really getting, using pedal stroke and pedal uh, speed, using cadence for uh, the most cycling specific or, or uh, well, addressing the demands of the sport. You, for instance, were, mentioned earlier that you um, race criteriums. You have mm -hmm. to be able to accelerate from a low speed to, a, to high speed quickly coming out of a, a low speed corner. That's different uh, than somebody who's a triathlete who has to maintain a very steady output for several, for several hours. So right. training your cadence to be specific to your event demands is, is part of the process as well. Yeah, for sure. And then also muscle development between slow twitch and fast twitch plays a role as well. Cool. All right, well, we have come, I, we've, we've been chatting a long time and uh, I like, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Um, now, do you have, before we just go, do you have any advice for that new person getting into cycling on Swift? Since we're gonna finish up with your Ride Inside book. Do you have advice, one, one piece of advice for before we go. Um, I, I would only suggest that the athlete uh, be uh, conservative when they're turning, uh, like with Zwift or any of the other apps that Jim mentioned a while ago. Be very conservative, uh, kind of feel your way along. Uh, try to be with, a, if you're doing indoor racing, try to get in the right group um, that mm -hmm. matches your, your performance abilities you know sometimes i'm afraid we try we tend to think we can do more than we really can do and it becomes very devastating when you find out you're getting dropped all the time so um just be very conservative about decisions athletes tend to to try to do the the most they can possibly do in the least amount of time now, that's always the challenge i face with athletes is you can't you know if i say the best workout to improve aerobic capacity is five times three minutes at 120 percent of your ftp with 90 second recoveries, that's the athlete, that's the workout the athlete does tomorrow. They don't start out by doing three times 30 seconds at that same power output with one minute recoveries. They start out with the very hardest possible workout. And that's just the way they are. So they need to be much more, need to be conservative, cautious as they get right. started in, in this new sport for them, especially turning indoors since there's so much uh, group activity in, on uh, indoor uh, apps. Yeah, I see. Uh, I see a lot of ladies going for 
super long rides, um, very challenging rides, like hilly stuff that they're not used to and getting very um, discouraged, right. you know? I think for me, um, I would encourage people to try a number of the apps before they settle on either one that they're going to spend most of their time on or come to the conclusion that they're going to have memberships on more than one of the apps. Mm. Zwift does some things very, very well, um, but it is, they're not all the same. Every, and every one of the apps has uh, their strengths and weaknesses. Um, the physics, for instance, on RGT are different than the physics on Zwift. So the, the, the ride feel is gonna be different. Drafting from one platform to another is slightly oh. different. Um, so the graphics or some of the apps are using um, virtual worlds and others are using um, alter uh, AR or we're writing to a video. So it's uh, keeping an open mind from the beginning and, and trying out the, the, the range of apps that are out there and realizing that depending on your, <clears throat> your goal and your, your preferences, um, you may end up switching from, uh, from app to app based on <clears throat> your goal for the day. Yeah, these are great advice actually, because I have, I have heard different comments about different platforms. Like I guess, and it also depends on what you're looking for personally. Because some people just like to ride um, in, you know, like Ruby apparently is very, very beautifully, like great graphics and um, actual places. And people just love that because they would just want to um, ride in different locations and they're not interested in racing or and things like that. I think that's great advice. Both of you have amazing amazing advice thank you so much um so all right i want to thank our listeners for jumping in and catching the segment i hope you took some great nuggets of information away from both of these amazing men and don't forget to subscribe and share this with your fellow cyclists with that have an amazing day and don't forget to check out the other amazing episodes on the podcast and we'll see you next time. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you again. And before you take off, I have a couple quick announcements, cycling related, of course. So I have my online bike maintenance webinar though you'll learn how to change your tires, repair broken chains, adjust your brakes, and learn how to use all the tools that are in your bike bag that you should be carrying with you. Go to bmcwebinar.com. The next one is my four-hour cycling skills intensive course. Now, this is where you're going to get all the cycling skills you need to take your experience to the next level, whether it's on the road or online. You're going to learn proper bike pedal form that's going to help you with your efficiency. You're going to learn how to climb hills, all the skills, tips and tricks, and speed and power. Not to mention we're going to finish off with nutrition that ties everything together. So go to cyclingskillspro.com and you can find all those information on my courses, webinars, and downloads there. Take care and have an amazing day. And remember, you're only one pedal stroke away from cycling like a pro.
Thank you so much for spending this time with me on the Secrets from the Saddle podcast, learning more about sighting people, places, and things that make cycling such an exciting sport. I am so glad you stopped by today. Please leave me a review if you feel so moved to do so. I would love to hear your feedback. And if you could take one second to share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it, I would be forever grateful. Also, if you could please leave me a review if you feel so moved by going to iTunes and leaving me an honest thought and an honest comment telling me what you think and most importantly, tell me what you'd like to hear more of. It would really help me to bring more great, inspiring cycling stories to you. Until then, have an amazing day. Make sure you ride your bike. And don't forget to visit my YouTube channel if you'd like to see the full version of this podcast live.